This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and we're here in our post-Oscars hangover period. Uh, I've got di- our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And we don't have Joanna Robinson with us today. She's off at South by Southwest. But joining us instead, we have our Hollywood correspondent, Nicole Sperling. Hi, Nicole. Hi, guys. Nicole, hopefully we're not wearing you out too much by making you do much of anything after the Oscars since you were actually there on the ground in the Dolby Theater and uh, aren't too sick of talking about the Oscars yet to catch us up on what you saw. No, I'm happy to be here. Thanks. So yeah, you were there on the ground. You were walking the red carpet for a while. You were, I understood you were going to hang out at the bar to get as uh, many tidbits as you could. Uh, Just overall from having been in the room for this year's Oscars, how was it as a show? Well, it felt kind of subdued. I mean, I think after last year, it's kind of a hard act to follow in terms of all the chaos that ended last year's show. People are excited as usual because they're at the Oscars and there were lovely little snack packs under everyone's seat. So everyone had a snack with a note from Jimmy Kimmel. That was new, right? I saw those on Twitter a lot and that seemed like a new addition. That was new. I mean, in years past, last year he handed out food and the year prior, there were other people who've tossed out food. Ellen DeGeneres had thrown around food. Remember the pizza delivery guy from a couple years ago? So we've had food as part of the show, but um, this time they kind of didn't make it part of the act, but just gave everybody food. What's up with the food thing? Are they just torturing people who haven't eaten for weeks? Is that the is that part of the joke? <laughs> I don't understand the food thing, actually, because while they have upgraded their bar and it is now a fully... Um, loaded bar that anyone can get any drink they want. The snacks that are in the lobby are very paltry. It's like little bags of popcorn. There's some trail mix. There are little packages of cookies floating around, but it's kind of weak. Like you'd expect something a little bit higher end at the Oscars, and it's really not. Was this because nobody would eat anyway because they're afraid of either getting food on their dress or popping out of it before the show's over? I think at this point, they're so used to not eating that maybe they'd give in. But I don't know. I don't know what drives that decision making. (laughs) So Jimmy Kimmel's coming back for a second time. I think a lot of people felt like they knew uh, what we were getting with him. And luckily for him and everyone, it went more smoothly. Did you get a sense of how people were responding to his performance, like especially in the opening monologue, but in general as a host? In the room, his monologue seemed to play really well. People loved the jet ski bit. That, I think, really went (laughs) a long distance. Um, Outside in the lobby, I talked to Judd Apatow about it afterwards, and he was out there with Leslie Mann for like the duration, it seemed, of the show. He just wanted to get in to watch his um, original screenplay category for The Big Sick, because he was a producer on the film. But he had told me that he actually has an annual call now with Jimmy, and that he went over the monologue with him. And he thought Jimmy himself 
himself would be really happy with how the monologue went because he thought it killed. So that was his perception of the night. I mean, in the room, it seemed to play better than it did on TV or for people watch- watching outside. Is that what you guys thought? I mean, I think it played well. I think, it, you know, something that I wrote about was that, like, I think he had to be a little bit, you know, there was some serious stuff happening surrounding all this. So I, I don't think he could go like full 100%, you know, like comedy you know, but I think it worked out. And a bit that I'm curious about is when he, you know, brought all the actors out of the audience and across the street to the theater. And I guess you were seeing that on a screen. How organic did it feel, uh, you know, in terms of who volunteered, you know, what, what did that did that appear to you to be all planned out? Or was it spontaneous? Richard, I have absolutely no idea. It was in the lobby during that segment. I just oh, okay. saw a group of stars <laughs> coming through and rushing back into the theater. So I missed the whole thing. I was like, why is Gal Gadot with Guillermo right now? I don't understand. Did you think there was like a fire drill or something? Like you should get on out of there? <laughs> yeah, it feel, felt very strange. And all of us in the lobby who really, it was a lot of people in the lobby who are not watching the show. That's what is so interesting to understand. It's kind of full where her like had no idea what was happening at that point and you can't hear the show either because you're standing out there and it is kind of amazing how many people go to the oscars to like drink at the bar and and i have a question nicole where does where do people smoke because we know that smoking is very important in hollywood let's face it there is a smoker's lounge like outside the front doors and it's kind of hidden there it wasn't as obvious this time as it has been in years past because at the Globes, there's a very, very convenient, large smoking area. I was, I was well, surprised. it's foreign press, Mike. That's true. <laughs> that <laughs> it's Galois only. That is a good point. No, I think at the Globes, it's like the highlight of the event. Not as much at the awards. Yeah, basically, the point is to go and smoke. Are there awards that everyone rushes back inside from the bar to make sure they see? Like, I got the sense watching that everyone was kind of on their feet for Jordan Peele to win screenplay. That seemed like something that might draw people in. Or is the bar just crowded the whole night? No, it does definitely um, empty out. And what was fat, my favorite part was when Jordan Peele w- won his Oscar, the whole, the whole people left in the bar went crazy. And it was the, actually the only time I heard an audible big applause for any award. But at that moment, the, the televisions are above kind of the ramp where people can come out of the theater. And at that moment that he won, Jennifer Lawrence walked down the ramp and everyone started applauding for Jordan Peele, but she thought they were applauding for her. So she lifted both arms up like, yeah. And I'm like, nope, not for you. (laughs) It was pretty amazing. I think you had been one of the people in LA who was kind of passing along to us that you had a sense that Get Out was really swelling, that there was a lot of affection for it. When that happened, did you think what I thought, like, oh my God, this might win Best Picture? I really did. I thought it was going to win Best Picture all all night. I was really hoping that that was going to be the case. But alas... What is it you think that um that kind of created that ground? So, I mean, obviously he won screenplay. Like, I don't think anyone from Get Out is unhappy with how it went. But what what sparked all of that, do you think? Well, I think honestly is people get bored. The season is so long and it felt even longer this year. It was longer because of the Olympics. So I think everyone's tired of talking about the same movies and they want something exciting to happen. I mean, let's be honest. There was not a surprising category winner throughout the entire show. So... The idea that not not so not so VFX was very surprising. <laughs> That's literally like the only surprise there was. 
and and how many people cared like maybe know, the vfx community for sure but it, it I was... had like six six um or seven categories wrong but they were all ones where i was like i well i know this one's gonna win but like wouldn't it be better if the other one won and in all cases like no the one that you knew was gonna win that you didn't want to win won. it was really just that kind of night yeah that's how i lose every oscar poll everyone <laughs> But what about when Shape of Water won? What was the mood like? What would what were people? What was the chatter? Honestly, where I was sitting, half the people like got up and ran out of the theater before they even heard Guillermo's speech. I mean, others were thrilled, and I think his speeches were great. And I and it is kind of funny how that became this like ho hum choice. But really, if we think about it, like that's really not a likely best picture winner in so many ways. And the fact that it did win does say something about. Hollywood taking, you know, embracing something that's unconventional, even though the filmmaking is pretty conventional. I mean, it is an unconventional story. So I don't know. I think it, people were happy, but it was also kind of like, okay, we're done. Let's move on. I mean, I think they just wanted to go to the governor's ball at that point. Yeah. When you say everyone runs out of the theater, are they all just like running to get in the limo? Line no, I literally think they were they like the whole section I was in just just emptied out. And they all I'm guessing they all got in line to go walk up to the governor's ball. I think. They were hungry. Yeah, they needed a drink. The snack pack was not cutting it. So, Mike and Nicole, you guys both were eventually at the Vanity Fair party. And, Mike, we talked to you some on Monday about uh, what you saw at the party. But for both of you, like, what was the vibe when everyone was kindly said and done with it? Is everyone just exhausted? What kind of celebrations were you seeing? It was really interesting. We got to see Martin McDonough and Jordan Peele have this kind of meeting of the minds. We think it was. I'm just, we just kept wondering what was being said between the two of them and really i was so curious what jordan peele's inner monologue was the whole time he was talking to martin mcdonough like did he think three billboards was problematic i was just so curious on how that in exchange went but everyone seemed pretty ebullient at that point i think that it's the last giant blast of adrenaline and everybody is having a really good time uh, I think I probably told you, although I was sort of delirious when we recorded the last episode, that I, I found myself in the corner where Ben Mendelsohn and Gary Oldman and Gary Oldman's family were hanging out. And, and that was a lot of fun. And I got to see like Lin-Manuel Miranda hanging out with, you know, Monica Lewinsky and some other people. It was just like there was just like the usual crazy combinations of people. Um, and uh, everybody was having a really good time. They were having a party. They were eating. They finally had some calories in them. They were drinking uh, alcohol and and you know enjoying the fact that this finally was over the forced march uh, had come to an end for another six months right and Francis McDormand was running around with a bucket of chicken so I mean how could it yes. get any better than that yeah yeah exactly exactly and I mean right it was just I, I think that in a weird way the party to me became the main event of the night just because the awards were so sort of anticlimactic despite the uh, people people seem to think that the production was really nice spike lee told us that was the best produced oscars ever like he loved the i guess maybe the swarovski crystals oh, where yeah. he was a fan Wait, and i know you were such a big fan I, Richard. yeah um nicole what how did that set got crazy set which i thought was horrible look in person was it was it dazzling was it kind of what was the impression you know to be near it it was pretty dazzling and then i don't know how it played on television but when emma stone came out for director and she walked through that like bunch of circles that were lit up that was kind 
that was I saw them put that together on stage just for the one award. And I thought maybe she was going to walk through some fire and it was really going to get exciting. But it was just light bulbs, unfortunately. But did that play on TV? It seemed like a whole lot of effort for not a lot of result. I do remember it, but I don't think that I knew if it was constructed or if it was just like a protracted backdrop, like that one Beauty and the Beast kind of set that they had for a while that looked like it was mostly painted. Mm, right. That I think was mostly painted. That one kind of looked strange from the from being in the in the chair. Like it didn't look that d- dramatic. How do all the montages play in the room? Because when I'm watching at home and they go into like this lengthy thing of all the previous best actor winners, I get kind of excited. But I'm wondering if this room full of people who are ready for a drink or get really restless. I think it kind of depends on your purview of the screens because they're not, you know, you kind of have to look to find them in some regard. Um the in memoriams played really well because you had Eddie Vedder singing and he was great live. Um, that was kind of awesome. Yeah. I remember, uh, I think Richard, you were talking about how you never expected Eddie Vedder to be, uh, the person who was moving you while performing at the Oscars. And there, there he was in 2018. <laughs> who, who could have guessed? Um, Nicole, from, from the bigger awards that you were in the room for, um, you know, I always try to like try to pay attention to like who gets applause when they're, you know, when they announce the nominations. Who seemed to be a crowd favorite in the room? Oh, Guillermo was definitely a huge crowd favorite. Um, and you know, Alice and Janie was too, even though I think there was some, a little bit of sadness that Lady Bird just went out home empty handed. And, you know, I guess they're, I don't know. She was definitely the favorite the whole way through, but I think there was some hope that Laurie Metcalf could somehow pull that off. I mean, they kind of had a rough night. I, I caught Greta Gerwig almost missed the category for supporting and she went running in like in a panic that she was going to miss. So I think she was hoping Lori was going to pull it out. And then um, I saw Lori at the bar after she had lost and she was so over it. Like she's such an introvert and this whole publicity thing is so not her style. And she was very clear that this had not been fun at all. And she was really mm. done. Do you think that for the for the more extroverts, it is fun at that point? Like, is are there people for whom who kind of thrive off of this and then people who don't? Well, Jennifer Lawrence seemed to be having a grand old time and she had no stakes. So she, yeah, she wasn't nominated. That's how you have fun. That is how you have fun. She was not nominated. She was out drinking. She was in, <laughs> you know, towering over Jodie Foster. I mean, she seemed to be having a fantastic time. Um I think some people like the ride because they get to meet lots of different people and it's thrilling in that regard. I mean, Kumail Najanian seem to have a fantastic time the whole way through. I just think it becomes such a drag. And for Lori, someone like Lori Metcalf, who's always working and had left New York the night before after doing two shows and then had to come to lose and had to go back to, to, to more, she was just like, please leave me alone. My friend, uh, my friend Chris Rosen at EW yeah. told me that um, Timothy Chalamet was treated like the literal pope uh, in the room. Is that was that your experience as well? <laughs> I mean, I think people have really <laughs> fallen in love with Timothy Chalamet. It'll be interesting to see where this guy's career goes from here. But I can't imagine that we. It'll be very long before we see him back there on that stage. Well, they they have plans. He's he's got like an addiction drama coming out this year, I think. Uh, Richard, I feel like you've been paying attention. Anyways, he's going to be in the Oscar race very Beautiful very boy. soon. It seems get ready. Beautiful get boy ready. for sure. Yeah, you'll see him. There we go up on that stage. I mean, that was Rebecca Keegan, our colleague's interesting observation. Is usually it's the female ingenue that gets the 
Best Actress prize. And so she thought maybe because it was Fran McDormand's to lose that maybe it would, the voters would go for Chalamet as kind of the male ingenue this year. But alas, it didn't happen. Nope. Nope. No surprise there. Again. That dynamic's just going to stay that way forever. Yeah. Well, somebody was saying the youngest uh, award winner ever was uh, was Adrian Brody, right? It was 29. Yeah. The youngest Best Actor winner, yeah. For, for Best Actor, yeah. Yeah, they don't like giving it to the young men for some reason. But young women, no problem. That's right. That's right. I wonder what could possibly underlie this dynamic. Yeah, it's fascinating. The younger, the better, as they say in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole, you were out on the red carpet at some points, too, right? Kind of keeping an eye on how uh, particularly the Ryan Seacrest of it all was going. Well, I was trying to keep an eye on the Ryan Seacrest, but that was happening at the first half of the uh, red carpet. And I didn't have the proper credential for that. And even Mm. with trying to sneak behind two stanchions, I failed and was kept kind of with the civilians and walking like on the civilian part of the carpet. I was I did find um Tarana Burke saw met up with Kelly Ripa at one point, and I thought that could have been interesting, but I I was too far away to see how that went down. Wow. It feels kind of like the red carpet survived by the skin of its teeth this season. Like, it was a fraught award season for everyone, but in the end, you know, Hollywood could, couldn't clap itself on the back for celebrating the shape of water but the red carpet like really struggled to stay relevant and then the ryan seacrest thing happened like do you do you have any sense from either the publicists or the stars to do it like how how they move on from this well a lot of them skipped it this year and a lot of jordan peele skipped it sam rockwell skipped it and they just were um escorted very quickly they took some photos and then they were escorted right into the um show and the publicists were kind of i talked to a few of them who said i just don't see the value in this anymore they're nervous right right now. This is not going to help quell their nerves at all. We're just going to get them into the show. And also, you know, it's thorny out there. So I don't know how it's going to proceed. I mean, I think, you know, there is that light, frothy red carpet that people like, but is this something we need? Is this a progressive part of our society to show more and more red carpet? I mean, maybe we can do better. I don't know how it will work. I thought watching some of it, I didn't watch a lot, that much of it because I was running around, but that um, you could really see E struggling to deal with this kind of new world where if they're not just going to be talking about your outfits and your beauty regimen and how your body looks and basically, you know, be objectifying you, um, they really didn't know what else to talk about. And when they tried to talk about the movies, it was clear that they didn't really have that much depth of understanding of it. Um, And the whole thing just felt... Yeah, it felt like it was a, a dying enterprise a little bit, certainly watching the E1. Uh, I, I think, and, I'm, and I only saw the E1, and I think that, that ABC was a big difference. And I want to also <laughs> point out that our colleague, Chris Smith, knows everything about all these movies and was on that carpet. But for E, it seemed like they were having, having a rough time. Yeah, I thought that was noteworthy that Krista got so many of the good interviews, I think probably because people knew that she would be able to talk about the movies. And Mike, at our party, you were on the red carpet. Let's not forget, you were on the vanguard of red carpet reporting. And you kind of did the same thing. Like, it feels like the whole like hashtag ask her more idea has expanded to everyone who walks the red carpet who doesn't want to put their fingers in the manicam. Yeah, I think Dave Carger is another person who obviously follows all this stuff really carefully. And, you know, it's not like you're having heavy cinema conversations, but you can at least talk a little bit about the movie, the season, the awards race, and not just literally be like at a loss for words if you're not allowed to talk about like, how did you get your skin to look so shiny? Um 
So I think that maybe hopefully that that points a way forward for this to be entertaining without being sort of like something that ultimately maybe makes makes women and girls feel like they're no one cares what they think or how they feel about stuff. What was your favorite red carpet interview, Mike, that you did? Um, it was probably Kyle McLaughlin, just because I'm a like a huge dork <laughs> and uh, I'm such a Twin Peaks fan. He seems so happy to be there. That was what was great about Kyle McLaughlin. Like he was as happy to meet you as you were happy to meet him. Always happy to be there. I mean, he's also a good actor. Let's face it. Um, <laughs> but uh, Halle Berry also that was super cool, and she was. I mean, may I objectify for one minute? I can't believe how gorgeous Halle Berry is. It's like standing and looking at the sun. Um, <laughs> but uh, but she also was really cool and. And and we talked about her, you know, the night that she won, which she said it's just a blur, but that but that this night is is an opportunity every year when she comes out to to meet all kinds of great people. And I mean, that was I think maybe we talked about it last week again. I can't really remember what we talked about, but um, it's always fun to be reminded that for the celebrities themselves, uh, the talent, as it were, um, you know, they're. This is not normal for them either. Like they don't usually go out in a room with uh, 500 other people who do what they do and and, and a lot of whom they look up to and admire and worship or or vice versa. So, um, So that was fun. We had a great conversation. Yeah, that's what's been the interesting thing about Me Too and Time's Up is that finally these actresses who never get to see each other because they're never on the same screen as each other have been able to spend all this time together. And I think that's going to change things as we go forward. At least maybe. Yeah, I like that idea. Nicole, I was going to ask you what happens after the Oscars, but I think the Time's Up question maybe is even more interesting. Like, we've gotten through this award season. It is fraught at various points. Does everyone take a break now? And then do you think this activism continues? Do people get back to work in the same way? Well, I actually went to a Time's Up um, briefing that they did for about 10 journalists on the Thursday before the Oscars, which great timing, guys. But um, we all sat around a table with like Shonda Rhimes and Ava DuVernay and Laura Dern and Tessa Thompson. I mean, it was quite impressive. And they kind of broke down what's been going on with Time's Up and what they've been doing. And they were very clear because they've been given so they were they had been asked over and over, like, what's going to happen at the Oscars? What's going to happen? And really, it wasn't a big, like, activation, as they like to put it, at th- that night. But they were, they kind of went into all the things they're doing and how the uh, legal fund has raised $21 million and they've received like 1,700 inquiries and they've matched up like 1,250. Um, complain com- people, women who are complaining with, um, lawyers who can, um, talk to them and see if they have any cases to file. So they don't seem to be slowing down at all. They seem to, in fact, be, um, really energized by what's happened. And they have all these working groups that have broken out and they're really trying to make the activism a real thing. And so I don't think they're going to slow down. I think it's just going to keep going. It feels like the question that we kept asking ourselves last fall when these revelations kept coming out is like, is this really going to change this time? And it feels like now it's indisputable that like whatever it actually manifests itself as something huge has changed for the industry. Well, the fact that Frances McDormand ended her speech with inclusion writer, and then we all had to go figure out what that is and how that is actually a thing. And it's a thing that apparently I talked to Dee Reese at the governor's ball, and she said that. She's been doing it since she's been working her first movie, Pariah, and she said that black filmmakers and black actors do it all the time. Denzel's known for demanding a certain number of um, African-Americans on his film sets, and he's been doing that for a while. And so it's the women who are kind of 
unaware to that being a possibility. And Meryl said that to me, too, that she just didn't know that was something she could demand, that she could demand that on her publicity for a movie that the half the journalists be women or or people of color, that she didn't know that she wow. could demand that. And so that in and of itself is going to change things, too. I had no idea that it was about journalists, too. I guess we all have to start <laughs> figuring out what an inclusion writer is. Yep, I think so. Who do you feel like, Nicole, at the end of this has had their career change the most or boosted? Like, who's walking out of this award season the most on top, do you think? Oh, I think it's Jordan Peele and Greta Gerwig. Even though Greta didn't go home with any awards for Lady Bird, I mean, that filmmaking and that movie, I think, is stands the test of time. And I'm so excited for what she do, does next. And the same with Jordan Peele. I mean, we all knew him as the half of the comedy duo Key and Peele, and now he is a force and he has so many projects going. And I think those two are really going to change the game. What do you think, Richard? Yeah, I mean, I think not, not to, uh, you know, point always point it back to vf but you know we had our they were on they were both on the cover of our first special issue this year for the oscars um that went out to voters and uh you know jordan and greta and i i agree i think that they were so much more talked about than uh any of the actors um and that were this year and and so the, yeah they were really kind of leading the the narrative um but past that um i would say that well while they were not winners um, I would say that because they got a nomination uh, for the second year in a row and they won last year, I think that that Pasek and Paul songwriting duo who wrote the song from Greatest Showman, I, they're going to be what? The new Diane Warren? Like, just <laughs> Well, be... Diane Warren still has never won. That's true. That's true, which is horrifying. But um, but I just feel like anytime there's some sort of uplifting musically song or a mu- musical movie that needs to be done, they're, they're the go-tos. They're, they're, they're solidified now. I think the news broke after the Oscars too that they're doing songs for the new Aladdin. So they're gonna, they're edging in on the Lopez's territory. They've had the Disney, uh, monopoly going for a while. That's true. Do you get the post Oscar blues? Like, do you get, do you get like any sort of like anticlimactic feeling, uh, like that Monday or Tuesday? Cause this was something that I was experiencing on Monday. Uh, I gotta tell you, no, I have to say the greatest (laughs) feeling I had was being at that Vanity Fair party and we had done all of the reporting and I had a drink in one hand and an In-N-Out cheeseburger in the other and I have never experienced such bliss. (laughs) Maybe that was the immediate cure for the blue. You staved off the blues. That was your, that was your emergency, you know, uh, thing to, to not, to not get it. Totally. Which is good. Totally. (laughs) Well, thank you again so much, Nicole. We will have you on again soon uh, to talk about something other than the Oscars. All right. Who knew? Sounds good. Or maybe next year's early predictions. <laughs> I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts in Dea at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
So, Richard, this will be at least the last official episode we have devoted to this award season. We're going to start moving on to things like the Emmys and to predicting next year's Oscars and maybe talking about other movies that have nothing to do with awards for the time being. Um, so I just kind of want to use this time with the two of us to, I don't know, what did we learn from this award season? Did we just learn that we barely survived and we should stop employing harassers? I, I saw hopefully a couple things that were representative of maybe some some coming change. You know, I think that Jordan Peele's success and Greta Gerwig's success, those are encouraging. I hope they're not just kind of, you know, anomalous events that and then next year we're back to the same old patterns. But I don't think so, because I think that something that while it wasn't perfect, what this Oscars broadcast did, and, and you know, some of the winners too, was that there was this kind of mutual, this, this kind of shared collective recognition that like, we can't do the same thing we've been doing. You know, we can't, we can't talk about things in the same way, or we have to start talking about things we haven't been talking about. And I don't really see that momentum slowing. Like, I don't feel like this is just going to be kind of the rise and fall of a, of a trend or a fad. I just think that be, given the kind of political climate we're steeped in beyond Hollywood, that that kind of complacency and, you know, re- regression to the status quo, I just don't see that happening. And I think that like some, some footholds in terms of progress were, were placed throughout the season while other, you know, not so great things happen too. But uh, I'm ending everything feeling kind of encouraged. I don't know about you. So you're talking about complacency in terms of like what is and isn't an Oscar movie or who is and isn't a person who can make a prestige movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and the, this, you know, that we, we can't be complacent about gender imbalance and, and harassment and all that stuff. And, and the way that that affects not just people's experience working in the industry, but how it affects filmmaking and, and films. And I don't know. I just feel like there was, even if the movies weren't exactly wholly representative of that new sentiment, I think that the way that the whole season kind of played out and, and, and even just the, the particular ceremony played out, I just felt like, I don't know, there was sort of a new awareness that had dawned and I don't, I hope that doesn't go away. I don't, and I don't feel like it will. I'm liking looking at just kind of, you know, looking at the nominees now that are part of the historical record. I'm always on the Wikipedia pages for Oscar years just to remember anything. And I like the range that we have of something from Get Out. And then you have a summer blockbuster in Dunkirk. And then you've got kind of like fall festival movies. Like there's this nice spread of all of it, which I think every year we're like, oh, well, all the Oscar movies start in September. And every year kind of learn to eat our words about that. And, you know, The Shape of Water was exactly that. It played at the three major, you know, Labor Day weekend festivals and went on to win Best picture but the the range in it you know i think the expanded best picture category every year kind of becomes more and more what it was intended to be i think it took a while for it to take shape but i really like the variety that we're managing managing to get both in terms of um, diversity in terms of who made them and what the movies are about yeah yeah exactly can I say something that I think is like a cautionary tale from this year? And, yes, you know, it's not, I'm yeah. far from a film distributor, but I think that Call Me By Your Name and especially its yes. box office performance is something to learn from. Like we've been watching, I don't know if it's exactly the lowest, lowest grossing of the Best Picture nominees, but it's at least pretty close. Uh, and it was distributed by Sony Pictures Classics and it kind of you know, spent a year since its Sundance release being talked about. And it's, uh, it's really underperformed. And I feel like you and I have maybe talked about this too, that like that's how you used to release a prestige movie and the, that's not how you do it anymore. Then SPC is kind of known for doing this well, which is weird. And, and they just kind of bungled this. And I think that, you know, something that I mean, this is all anecdotal and, and not representative of most of the country, certainly, or the world. But, you know, the appetite for Call Me By Your Name, like on gay Twitter, let's say, was pretty, pretty avid. And yet, at a certain point, I noticed a turn where a lot of people who don't live in the two major biggest markets in the country, being here in New York and in Los Angeles, 
they got kind of sick of it because they were like, I can't see this movie until middle of January. And you've and, been making peach jokes on Twitter since last yeah. March. And I yeah. think it kind of turned people against it in a way like or or some people kind of already felt like they'd seen it. And so like when it was actually out, everyone was just kind of sick of it. So I think, yeah, I think you're right that like that was definitely a cautionary tale. And like it was nominated for Best Picture. It won the screenplay. Like, you know, we're not talking about any failures here. But what I think what gets us so enthusiastic about all of this is that we get to talk about these movies for so long. And it becomes really hard when there's something like this, that there's so much enthusiasm for that's just basically absent for most of the country. A couple months ago, I talked about trying to, I think for a New Year's resolution, trying to sort of exist outside the bubble of, of you know, sort of inward facing <laughs> Twitter culture, yeah. film culture. It's hard to do. But I think that like the calling by your name situation is a good example of that. I think, you know. And which is why it made, you know, so exciting when something like Get Out, um, or even Dunkirk or, you know, is, is sort of in this conversation because like at the very least we, we're, we're probably, it's more likely that, that people, the public, the hoi polloi <laughs> have actually seen the thing, which it makes the conversation a little bit more fun, I think. Yeah. I mean, so speaking of Dunkirk and asking to make another bold prediction that's not really our lane, is Christopher Nolan ever going to win an Oscar? Is, was this his best chance and it's gone and like it just is official? I mean, whoever knows, you know, directors have can have m- much more long lasting careers than actors sometimes. But, you know, you you do sometimes get that feeling with with one of these nominees who's, you know, either never been nominated and this is their one shot or been nominated a ton of times. And maybe this is their last shot where you can just kind of feel that moment. We were like, this was probably it, you know, uh, and I kind of did with Nolan, even though he's a relatively young, he's a relatively young guy. But I just what is his subject matter going to be? next that gets the same kind of awards he acclaim granted we're, we're talking about how the kind of the notion of an awards movie has changed with shape of water winning you know which is pretty unorthodox all things considered you know but like i don't know i mean dunkirk was dunkirk like like that that subject matter you know was supposed to resonate with a certain type you know type of voter and and it did on some levels but like i just don't see him you know he, he's kind of a sci-fi bent like I don't know. I don't know what the next project would be that would give him the same level of acclaim yeah. and sort of awards attention. I think maybe he needs to be an underdog again. Like that was the, yeah. the position that the Dark Knight was in when it was the superhero movie that everyone wanted to nominate. And Christopher Nolan has had massive success by all measures. And Dunkirk is a World War II movie. It is, you know, it is a traditional Oscar movie in this period, as we said, that they're trying to get away from that. Um, so it might, he might have to kind of make something weirder. And he's definitely done that. I mean, Inception was also a weird Oscar movie. Um, I don't know. I feel, I did not get the feeling that that was the last chance for him. I was glad that he finally got his nomination, but I, I don't know. I'll be really curious to see how he processes this and in terms of what he decides to do next not that oscar nominations determine everyone's careers i don't think that he would ever do this because i mean dunkirk itself was not a terribly sentimental movie maybe a little bit there at the end but like i just hope that like he doesn't go chasing the oscar you know like and yeah and, and that that affects the kind of stuff he makes like i hope that he stays true to sort of i mean his you know evolving maybe but like his 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 tone and his his vision you know um i think you can get into trouble when people start courting the oscar too too heavily you know who i'm counting on uh to show up really soon who didn't mind making the cut is sean baker on the florida project i, I think yeah. i feel like the next thing he does is gonna really land because that got so much attention uh didn't make the cut he's like the ultimate underdog status um yeah. just in terms of like who i'm really excited to see what they do next but you do also in the same vein like i hope that he if if he wants to, I mean, obviously his style can evolve, but like, I hope that he maintains the sort of the scale and the proportion of, of his, you know, his, his movies, which are, which are part of what makes them um, so special, I think. 
maybe I just keep throwing thought experiments at you, but this is why I like it passing over the Oscars. Of the actors who didn't win this year, who do you think is going to win an Oscar soonest? Uh, Saoirse Ronan. Yeah. Like yeah. her next movie. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was writing this piece for the website about like upcoming movies with women leads, and and, and Mary Queen of Scots uh, is coming out. Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll talk about this on our big preview episode, but like that's coming out uh, in the fall. It's from a, it's the first feature from a really lauded female theater director in, in England. It's her, it's her and Margot Robbie. The script is by Bo Willimon, based on a book. Like that just feels prestigey. I don't know, you know, sometimes this that period stuff can fall a little flat as, as sort of too obvious awards bait but you no know, if it's not that project like i just feel like ronin is so beloved and makes interesting choices and has really not been bad in anything she's done no i was thinking about that about how like every time she's made something she has seemed so confident like with all of her nominations it's been like oh she could win for that because she just seems so possessed on screen uh and it's not like she's overdue she's 23 but i think you might be right although i would also keep an eye on sally hawkins who also feels like she's kind of been like in the margins for a long time now she's in a best picture winner there seems like a there could be some momentum building there too yeah i mean she's an interesting case because she you know she makes these kind of odd choices 15 years ago maybe and even though it's a tiny movie and tiny movies are actually getting more attention now uh sally hawkins was also in a movie called maudie uh this past year last year yeah that in an older kind of oscar era i feel like would have been way up there as a top you know so like so Hmm. she's doing the work you know it might not always get the attention like it's crazy that she wasn't nominated for happy go lucky but but it looks like she's kind of maybe on an upswing again uh which is exciting because she's she's great yeah happy go lucky was another one of those like unfairly snubbed kind of to build a buzz for whatever happens next which she got nominated for blue jasmine a little bit uh after that uh, I'm also curious if Willem Dafoe ever wins an Oscar now. Like he, it seemed like he was gonna finally get it this year and then the Sam Rockwell surge finally happened. Like it feels like it could go either way. Like he could get nominated for the next three things he does or like this was as close as it gets. Well, yeah, again, like that's someone where you're kind of like, ooh, that feels like that was maybe the last chance. But then yeah. again, you have Christopher Plummer at 88 nominated and Willem Dafoe's what in his early 60s. So it, you know, <laughs> and Christopher 50s, Plummer so. wasn't even in that movie until November of last right. year. Yeah. <laughs> like two months before the nominations came out. Um, all right. So in the end, we think good award season, bad award season. Are we, I mean, obviously we're, we're a little tired of it, but, uh, do we feel like Hollywood acquitted itself pretty well? I think so. I think the movies were interesting. Um, there were a couple, you know, heartbreakers here and there, but for the most part, I'm happy with, um, the stuff that got recognized, you know, and I think that it's exciting when, when we don't know what's going to win best picture or really have any idea what's going to win best picture. I think it, it obviously it's a little bit consternating for people like us who have to make predictions and, and doing all that kind of guesswork and then being proven right or wrong. But, but yeah, I, th- I, I mean, I had, it was tiring toward the end, but I had fun. Yeah, I think I, I need to look up the exact stat of it, but that's at least several years where the, you know, the Golden Globe winner and the SAG winner have not matched up with the Oscar Best Picture winner. Uh, you know, Moonlight came as a surprise in that way. Spotlight was battling that with The Revenant. So even though The Shape of Water, as we've discussed, was really in the hunt the whole time, it, uh, it kind of snuck up at the end there. And I think the more variety we get in that, the more that these precursor awards don't just feel like this death march of the same winners over and over again, the, the better that is for all of us. And God, the less bored we get. Oh, yeah, exactly. And that's and that's, that's what it's really all about. Yeah. Oh, us yeah. It's all about me. Yeah. yeah. And how much we like the sets on the Oscars. And uh, they should have given us some snacks, just like they got in the Dolby Theater. <laughs> exactly. 
Uh, so that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. We are not taking an off season. We will be back next week and all of the weeks. We're going to be talking about Emmys. We're going to be talking about the 2019 Oscars. We'll talk about Ready Player One. Uh, there's a lot going on. So please stick with us. Uh, thank you for making this such a fun award season for all of you listeners. And thank you for tweeting at us. I know it sounds really uh, self-serving, but we really love hearing from you and especially about your Oscar pools. Um, so if you find us at little gold men as well as on vanityfair.com and we're all on Twitter on our own. I'll speak for Mike and Joanna. Mike's at Mike underscore Hogan. Joanna's at Joe wrote this. I'm at Katie rich and Richard. I'm at Rylaws. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best description of why Mike Hogan had to leave this week's episode recording early goes to Nicole Sperling. But he had told me that he actually has an annual call now with Jimmy. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.